Well, thank you, talented people who love Jesus. How good to remember this most earth-shaking, actually literally, earth-shaking event. And I don't mean really by literally there. I mean literally earth-shaking event and history-changing, life-transforming event of the resurrection. This is right at the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, I just I want to welcome you. I want to welcome everybody who's still coming in. Would you slide to the center if there are any vacant seats in the middle to make it easier for those coming in now? If, would, would everybody slide to the center? Just look and see if there are any seats in the middle and make the seats on the edge available. Yes? Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, well, what a, what a great day to remember. Christians all over the world have been and will continue to celebrate, remember Jesus' resurrection. This is it. This changed everything forever. And that's what this church is built upon. This actually happened. This happened. Many of you know Levi Clark, one of my favorite humans on the planet. Uh, Levi's a delightful little boy, and he, he loves to have stories read to him. And his, his little brain is trying to figure out this really tough, if you step back and think about it, this tough difference between fiction and nonfiction, right? Because sometimes fiction can seem more real than nonfiction, and, and it comes alive in your head. And so he's got this go-to question he's been asking Kenny and Betsy when they read stories to him, and when he hears things, and the go-to question has become, did this happen on the earth? <laughs> That's his question. Is this one of those things that actually, that happened on the earth? And not just in someone's mind or heart or imagination, but that this happened on the earth? That's a great question. And that's what we're saying this morning. The resurrection happened on the earth. It really happened. And it changed everything. It's what Christians for centuries, for millennia, have anchored our faith in. The resurrection. Now, I know Easter's a time, and we're grateful for this. We get a lot of folks who, who just feel an uh, inclination to go. Some of you may be here with your families and wouldn't be here if they weren't sort of making you go. <laughs> and you're here with them, and maybe you don't want to be. Uh, but, but what I would want us all to consider this morning is that the resurrection is the best answer to all of life's greatest problems I've ever heard. I don't think there's a better answer. And it's not enough to say, I don't like that answer. You actually need a better one. And even if you can't get yourself to believe that the resurrection is true, that it actually happened, deep down, don't you wish it had? If you don't believe it, don't you want it to have happened? Because it really is the answer to things like, oh, death, which you do want an answer to, right? And even though the Lion King tells us it's just part of the circle of life, we know deep down that's not a sufficient answer. That we need an answer that actually defeats death, doesn't just try to pacify our concerns about it. You look around, what's the answer to the horror we see in the news every single day? What are the answers to the brokenness, the sin, the evil everywhere? What is your go-to answer? For Christians, it's always been the resurrection. It's always been that God has given the answer, solved the problem with a man who came and lived and really died and rose from the dead. 
That's really the answer, and it really happened on this earth. And that's why the resurrection becomes the focal point of the preaching of the first followers of Jesus as the church got going. Would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2? Peter here gives this sermon that is so helpful to us in understanding the resurrection, but understanding the good news of Christ that he brings. He said he came to preach the good news to the poor, and that good news is centered upon his resurrection, that he really rose from the dead. He really did do that. It's the solution we desperately need. So Jesus walks with his disciples for three years, and he's going to the cross, and they don't like that idea, but they, he goes anyway, and he dies for the sins of the world. He rises from the dead. He gives them what we call the Great Commission. Go and preach the gospel to all nations. And you might not like, if you're not a Christian, the, the way some Christians, probably not a lot actually, but some Christians take seriously this call to preach, to proclaim the good news. Well, you need to know. It's, it's just seeking to be consistent with the message Jesus actually gave to us, to, to centrally be pointing people to him and proclaiming the, the, the most good news of his life and death in our place and restoring us to God. And so, so we're just trying to be consistent when we preach and proclaim. It's just part of the deal for us. Uh, we don't always enjoy it, although on our better days we do, but, but that's what we're about. That's what we're doing right now. And, and so I want us to listen to this sermon because Jesus says to his disciples, you are to go to all the world and proclaim the good news. Tell everybody with boldness and confidence that I came and that I solved all the problems, ultimately, that the world deals with centrally. So, so that's what we're doing. But he says something very interesting to them. But don't you budge, he says, until the Holy Spirit comes upon you in a radical new indwelling way that will be the means by which you accomplish this great commission. And so they don't. They, they hunker down and they wait. He gives this massive commission. And he says, and don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit shows up in this new way. And then he does on the day of Pentecost. And it's actually a fulfillment of a prophecy in Joel 2 in detail. And it's just amazing. The Spirit comes upon people. They preach the good news of Jesus. And people in droves are responding to this. The, the Spirit's coming. People are hearing the message of Jesus preached in their own languages as they've come to visit Jerusalem, even though the people preaching it weren't saying that language. There was this miracle that happened. And it was just astounding to people. So Peter enters and says, let me explain you what's going on here. And he quotes from Joel 2. And he says, oh, this is what many years ago the prophets said would happen when Messiah came. When he started taking back his world. And that's what happens. And he goes on in the explanation, connecting the dots to the very old promises in their fulfillment now. So listen to Peter as he preaches to those in Jerusalem, beginning at verse 22 of Acts 2. If you need a Bible, please just raise your hand. We'd love to give you one. Our ushers will bring you a Bible. Just raise your hand. Keep it up there. They'll get it to you so you can look on with us. Acts 2, 22. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word, grateful that it leads us to know the word, Jesus, and we pray that that's exactly what would happen this morning. By the Spirit's power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 2.22. 
Here goes Peter. Continue to explain what just happened. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Now notice he keeps saying, in your midst. That we're all witnesses. But watch how many times he refers to the fact that this was a public reality being put out there for public consideration. This idea that religious things, that spiritual things, actually the most important things are private, has, has, is not the way the Christian life views the most important things. They're very public, intended to be so. Obviously not to impose on anyone. You can't do that with faith, real faith. But most certainly to be put out there for public consideration as public knowledge. So as you saw, as you witnessed, he says, a man attested with many mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, to the, the place of the dead or let your Holy One see corruption, the decomposition of his body. You have made known to me the paths of life and will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke, listen, about the resurrection of the Christ, of the anointed one, the one who had come as God's special agent to bring his kingdom and solve all our problems ultimately. That one who came as the Messiah, the Christ. He foresaw and spoke the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. See, Peter here is saying, oh, to this mostly Jewish audience with Gentiles there too, he's saying, oh, what we're proclaiming is actually not something very new, but something very old. That even King David said would happen a thousand years before it happened. He's saying Jesus coming and, and living and dying and rising is something that the prophets and even David himself said would happen. There's, there would one come, a Messiah, who would rise from the dead. God wouldn't let death take him. Wouldn't let death defeat him. David was talking about Jesus, Peter, saying he's connecting these prophetic dots from the old covenant to the new covenant. Hadn't abandoned him to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And listen, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Did you hear that? In the same city that just days before had been screaming in mass, crucify him. Now they see Jesus for who he is as the resurrected Messiah and Lord and they bow at his feet and they declare that he is the savior. He is the one who restored their relationship with God and brings the kingdom. Amazing, 3,000 in the city that crucified him turn and follow Christ. What an amazing story. Just six things I want to point out about Jesus. You ready? One, he's a man. Did you see in verse 22? Jesus of Nazareth, a man. That's important. Not a myth. Not a fable. Not an inspiring mythical figure. Uh, A man. He actually was a man. And in many ways, stunningly humble. Nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. Nothing that would have gotten him most likely to succeed at Nazareth High. No, just, just a man. Just a very common man. No titles, no prestige, no sex, no, uh, no uh, parties he's a part of, no important credentials. No, just a man. In all this humility, his favorite self-designation is the son of man, which both emphasizes his humility, his mere humanness. And as well as, depending on how he uses it, that he's the Messiah who's coming in the clouds one day to rule and reign once and for all. But, but he's a man. He's a human. He really existed. He re- this really happened on this earth. Two, same verse, verse 22. Jesus was attested by God to be more than a man, though. Uh, See verse 22, attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Again, you saw it. This happened among many witnesses. Thousands saw Jesus. This happened over a period of more than a month where they saw these things happen and then they saw him post-resurrection as well. So three years in his public ministry, he's giving evidence that he's more than a human being. He's the one who has the power over darkness. He's the one who has the power over sickness and disease and death itself. He demonstrated that over and over again. We're preaching through the gospel of Mark here at Grace. And it's it's been incredible for us to go through this book with all these miracles and see over and over again how powerful Jesus is. 
He really has the power we need to solve the powers of darkness and the problems they present in our lives. And so he's attested to be more than a man. He's the son of God who comes in power. Verse 23 tells us the third thing I want us to realize about Jesus is that he's crucified and killed. This man who was more than a man actually was put on a cross. And that you'll notice this happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God by the hands of lawless men. Even though people are very responsible for what they did in their lawlessness, the most grievous sin probably ever committed is putting the only truly innocent man who ever lived on a cross and executing him in this way. And they're responsible for this, but we see nothing, even the most grievous things happen outside of God's sovereignty, outside of his working things out. Jesus dies on a cross and the Father's not stymied by this. He's not bewildered by this. He's actually saying my plan is unfolding just as I determined it to. And so, so this happens according to God's foreknowledge and his plan by the hands of, innocent, of lawless men. But then look at the fourth thing. This is our Easter point. Jesus was raised from the dead by God. Verses 24 and 32, right? Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In light of who he was and in light of God's definite plan to conquer death with his death and resurrection, it's impossible for this not to have happened the way it did. Because God, and God alone, by the way, is the only one who can do anything he sets his mind to, no matter how many well-intentioned teachers and coaches and parents may have told you otherwise. Only God can do whatever he sets his mind to, and that always comes to pass, what he sets his mind to. And the death and resurrection of Jesus is such a thing. In verse 32, same idea. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. God raises him up. And this resurrection really happened on this earth. A thousand years before, Peter points out, this resurrection was prophesied. David said it would come to pass in the life of the Messiah. And sure enough, it does. And then Jesus shows up, and he's constantly pointing them ahead, not just to the cross, but to the resurrection as well. Listen to Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and in three days rise again. So Jesus himself knows the resurrection is this culmination of his earthly ministry for us. That it, it is, yes, his ministry is the fulfillment of all of these promises that were made thousands of years before. And the resurrection, like I said, is the greatest solution I've ever heard. And, and I, I will put it up against any other solution you may have depended on in your life. You may be depending on right now in your life. Really, what could possibly be better than someone with his death and life conquers death and brings life abundant and eternal? That's as good as it gets. And so I want you to consider this this morning and put it up against whatever solution you may be fleeing to in light of all of the grievous darkness in this world. And even though we may try to act like it's not there or pad and insulate our lives with all sorts of accoutrements and possessions and distractions, it's there. The evil in this world, the brokenness in the world, the sin in the world, the death that awaits every one of us. Do you know the average life expectancy of humans on the planet, 62? I've got 11 years. If I'm average, I might not have tomorrow. 
You either. What are you going to do about that? Anything? Try to ignore it? Just whistle in the dark? And no, we need solutions to these things. Isn't it something that in every human heart is a desire that things don't just stay the way they are? That we have a longing to see things change and be redeemed and restored? And many of us even work for that? Why? Is there any ultimate hope in it all adding up to any ultimate solution? I don't think so unless Jesus rose from the dead. And because he did, I think so. And so this is abundantly true historically. There's great evidence that this really happened. Great evidence. There's, there's an empty tomb. There are extra biblical, outside the Bible, historical sources that say, yes, th- this story circulated. This actually happened. There was an empty tomb, and you need to explain it somehow. There are the lives of the disciples who went from cowards cowering in a corner and now were boldly proclaiming at risk of their lives and all but one actually lost their lives because of their proclamation. And that one, the Apostle John, lived the life of a martyr even though he died in his old age. They, they turned into bold proclaimers for something they believed actually happened. And the fact that we're sitting here right now is an amazing evidence of the resurrection. How else can you explain the Christian church enduring, starting at all, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? If he just died and walked away and and we never saw him again because he was crucified and died, well, how does the church start? No, the church was based, as we've seen in this sermon, on the fact of the resurrection. It's, It's important to come to grips with the historical reality of the resurrection. And all these eyewitnesses, they keep saying, you all saw it, you all knew it. You all knew this happened, right? It didn't happen in a corner, as one uh, biblical writer says. It it didn't happen in secret. No, it happened in public. And he he wants them to come to grips with this. And there's this interesting thing. It's been been interesting. I'm I'm 51, and it's been interesting to watch things change so much in my lifetime. When I grew up, I could get in an argument with somebody about the resurrection really easily. I can't anymore. It's hard for me to find arguments these days because people don't say, ah, it's a bunch of bunk which I can really respect. You know what people say to me now? Hey, I don't believe it, but I'm happy for you. And I want to say, oh no, you you need to realize as a Christian, if you really want to respect my views, you need to realize that we think that if we are believing a lie, we're actually, Paul says, the biggest fools on the planet. We're banking everything on something that didn't really happen. And we're assuming that it really happened and it had to have really happened for anything actually to work out so please argue with me try to convince me otherwise I'm like no don't say you're happy for me right I would not be happy for you if I knew you were basing your whole life on a lie I wouldn't be happy for I don't think that'd be nice I don't think it'd be nice to be happy for someone basing their whole life on a lie don't be happy for me (laughs) if you don't believe in the resurrection be concerned for me really uh we can get somewhere right? If we could just disagree and love each other in the midst of it. The resurrection had to have happened for anything in the Christian faith to be true. If the resurrection didn't happen, you wouldn't find me anywhere near a church. I I have no idea why people are just religious. I I really don't. I I don't get it. I, I guess I sort of do for a while, maybe, because maybe you're lonely. But, but, to, to do it even while we're doing now, this is really stupid if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. This whole thing is really stupid. 
But we believe he did, which is why we, we devote ourselves to scripture and to knowing him through prayer and worship and the gathering and, and relationships of the saints and taking the Lord's Supper and observing baptism and doing all the things Christians do and loving people in the power of the resurrection. We actually think it happened. We don't think it was a myth. We don't think it was a metaphor that gives us inspiration. A lot of people want to hold on to Jesus and the resurrection that way, and he just won't allow for it. If you really want to respect Jesus, don't try to tweak him in a way that fits your worldview better than it fits his worldview. It's not very respectful. So uh, listen to John Dominic Crossan. Uh, The Christian faith says that Jesus is with God, which is beyond any proof or disproof. I disagree. He says, because the resurrection's a metaphor, a metaphor which is the ultimate source of the staying power of Christianity in the Bible. And so many approaches to Jesus want to embrace him, but not as someone who really rose from the dead and is now calling the shots. But that's who he is. And Eastern mysticism and New Age religions affected by them are actually reality-denying religions. They, one of the best things about the Christian way of thinking is it's, it, it, it says that matter matters. Stuff matters, right? The physical world matters. The doctrine of creation teaches this. The doctrine of the incarnation, God becoming stuff in the sun. The, the resurrection clearly is what this is about and the ascension that, that he stays matter. He stays physical in his human existence when he becomes a human being, the, the eternal son of God does. And, and the, the new heavens and the new earth, what's the best solution to all the problems in the world? Just scrap it all and start over? Ignore it? Act like it's not really as messed up as it is? It's a little more education, a little more political solutions, a little more government funding, a little more uh, whatever it is, more and more time. Better parents, that's what it is, better parents. No, what's the real solution? God has the solution, it's called redemption. Redemption based in resurrection. It's making things new. Not scratching them and starting over, but making them new again. The creator recreates in the same resurrection power that he brought his son up from the dead. That's what we have here. It's, it's amazing. Matter matters. And in it, God realizes that he needs to redeem it all and he fixes all the sadness, all the sorrow, all the brokenness in this world. And Christianity is a reality affirming religion. Listen to Tim Keller. The pains of the present world must now be addressed with the news that the healing justice and love of God have won. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things. Isn't it amazing? Toleration, tolerance is the word these days. I'm so glad we have an intolerant God. In that, he won't tolerate sin and evil and sickness and darkness. He won't put up with it. I think Christians in northern Iraq get this a little better than we do. God hates evil in this world, and he will deal with it, and he has dealt with it in Christ. He won't tolerate such things. And that we will work and plan, and with all the energy God gives us, we will try to implement the victory of Jesus in our world. Most people care deeply about justice and the poor, alleviating hunger and disease and caring for the environment. But yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by an accident. 
and that the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up in the death of the sun. They find it discouraging that so few people care about justice without realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end nothing we do will ever make a difference? If the resurrection of Jesus happened, however, that means there's infinite hope and reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world. Matter matters, and the resurrection actually happened on this earth. I've read this before at Easter, but I just love this poem by John Updike. Listen to what he says. Make no mistake. If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle. the church will fall. It was not as flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the 11 apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart, that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might. New strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous. For our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. Let's not mock God with metaphor. Let's see it for what it is, as something that really happened on this earth, that really brought the victory over death, that really put God's stamp of approval on Jesus' life and work. It vindicated who Jesus is and what he did. It shows his sacrifice was accepted by the Father and a full atonement really has been paid. Listen to N.T. Wright. Death is the ultimate weapon of the tyrant. Resurrection does not make a covenant with death. It overthrows it. The resurrection is the ultimate affirmation that creation matters, that embodied human beings matter. And we now have resurrection power over death and sickness and sin and cynicism and self-pity and persecution and disappointment and doubt and spiritual dryness and depression and despair and duplicity and deceit. We have victory over these things. And that victory doesn't just await a future day in heaven. It's that same power that God raised Jesus from the dead that makes us alive when the Spirit works like he did on the day of Pentecost. We recognize that that Spirit that came in this way is still coming all the time, every day on this earth, making people anew, making people new creations in Christ. 
And every time the Spirit of God takes over and removes a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh and we turn from our sin and turn to Christ and fall at his feet, just like the people in this story, did you hear their response? They say, what do we do? They're cut to the heart. The message didn't just land on stony hearts. They were cut to the heart. They knew that there was a response that was required. And in verse 38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's this turning from sin, turning from the way of darkness, the way of death, away from God and turning toward him by turning toward Christ and depending on him in his finished work. That's repentance. That's turning and falling at the feet of Jesus. And we see that in this story, he is Christ the Lord. He is not just uh, the one who rose from the dead so that we could have life. He's the one who rose from the dead so we could have life and who would then be our Lord. Do Do you notice how it describes him as he's the one who is Christ and Lord? And that's the fifth point, verse 36. The one who you crucified is both Lord and Christ. He fulfills the messianic promises, brings the kingdom, brings reconciliation, and he now calls the shots. Listen to Tim Keller again. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like the teaching of Jesus but whether or not he rose from the dead. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, whether you click your like button or not on his teaching really isn't the question anymore. If Jesus rose from the dead, you need to learn to like his teaching. If Jesus rose from the dead, he's the boss. He calls the shots. He's the Lord. We don't negotiate with him anymore. We submit to him. He runs our lives now. He, he conquered death. He demonstrated that he owns it all and he's the heir of all things. And in light of that, we'd say, yes, sir, when he tells us to do something. Jesus is the Lord. He's Christ. And the amazing thing here is, is that what Peter says to these people, you notice he doesn't just say the, the, the Roman centurion and the religious leaders who conspired to put Jesus on the cross. He says it to the whole crowd. He said, you all crucified the Lord of glory. Y'all did. And, and he's saying that to you this morning. Oh, it happened in the hands of lawless men, but it happened because of the lawlessness of humanity. You're implicated in the death of Jesus. You crucified the Lord of glory. It was your sin that put him there. And the amazing thing is that your lawlessness, your, cru- your murdering of Jesus enables your forgiveness. And so, so Peter's saying to you this morning, you, all of us this morning, you crucified the Lord of glory. And you know what Jesus is saying to you? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let the wicked forsake his way, and he'll find forgiveness. Come back. The Lord of glory who you crucified offers you forgiveness this morning because of his death, because of his new life he brings. That's the offer Jesus presents this morning. It's the most wonderful good news you could ever hear. Listen to verses 38 and 39. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. I'll read it again. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then listen to what it says. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone with whom the Lord God calls to himself. I love that. If we turn we can not only start an entirely new life in Christ, 
but we can start a ripple effect in the generations that follow our lives that will echo for generation after generation and into eternity. That's what this church is about. This church is about raising up a generation that is walking with God faithfully, passing on the faith, long after we leaders are dead and in the ground. Because that's what God says can happen when we turn from our sin and turn toward Jesus. And then we have new life. We have a new way of living. Listen to this. It's not just a heavenly promise. It's a present-day promise. When we baptize people in this church, this is what we, we, we recite. We're buried with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead makes us new and gives us power over sin in our lives. Power to walk in righteousness now. Power to live and serve and love in the power that rose Jesus from the dead. It's a present reality in our lives now. Did I lose my notes again? Did they go somewhere? What happened? Where are you pointing me, Jordan? Jordan, you led me astray. Oh, here they are. They're right where I left them, like my glasses always are. Yes. Um, listen to Colossians 3.1. Listen, listen. Forget about my foolishness. Listen. If then you have been raised with Christ... If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Other, the implication is if you haven't been raised with Christ, just live here. It's all you got. It's all you got. But if you've been raised with Christ, set your mind, live in your mind and your heart and your life on things that last forever, on where Jesus is seated in his authority. Get aligned with him. Listen to Ephesians 1.18. He, he prays that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we may know what is the hope to which he's called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, listen, and that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So we have new life in him that ends up affecting everything now. Everything's different now. Everything's changed now. We are now blood-bought, made-new children of God. And the day of judgment's coming. Listen to Acts 17, 31. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world by righteousness, by a man whom he appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all. How? By raising him from the dead. The day of judgment's coming, and the good news is on the day of judgment, you won't have to answer for yourself. Jesus can answer for you if you trust him by faith. That's my deepest longing, that you would not leave here without trusting Christ that you would see the emptiness of sin and the life of Jesus and want nothing more than to know him and love him and live in him. That's what it means to be a Christian, not to follow a myth or a fable or a metaphor, but something that really happened on the earth and is in the process of transforming everything on this earth. Trust Jesus today. He is the only answer. Help us, Father, to live lives grounded in the truth of the resurrection, realizing that Jesus alone brings life and light and health and wholeness and victory. Lord, we love you and we thank you for sending your son and that he came joyfully and the spirit is even now making these things come home to our hearts in deeper ways. We thank you, Lord, for the amazing truth of the gospel grounded in the resurrection of Jesus 
And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.